0: Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we
1: invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Luke 4, verses 1 through 14. that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power I will give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto men, and to whomever I will, I give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, thou wilt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him or said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give the angels charge over thee, to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fang of him through all the region round about. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son being sent here to understand our sins and to pay the ultimate price for our sins, which is death. We thank him for this. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, Father that we may always pay attention to it and that it allow it to guide us. This we ask in our Lord Savior's name, Jesus Christ. We ask that your blessing be upon the pastor, Lord. We ask that you guide his message and that we all benefit from it. We give our blessings and prayers to you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: All right. Well, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke, our journey with Jesus, and we find ourselves this morning in Luke chapter four, which is the uh, the temptation narrative where Jesus is tempted by the devil. And we saw really in the last three chapters a series of testimonies from different sources about who Jesus was. That's one way to view the uh, beginning chapters of Luke. First, uh, we saw in chapter one we saw Gabriel talking about Jesus and how he was the Son of God, the coming King, the Messiah. And uh, the host of angels in chapter 2, when Jesus was born, they attested to who Jesus was. So we've seen angels' testimony. We've also seen people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you remember them from chapter 1, who uh, also gave testimony to who they understood Jesus to be. And then we saw Mary, John the Baptist, Simeon and Anna, all of these people gave testimony to who Jesus was. And so really in the first three chapters, uh, Luke is establishing that Jesus was no ordinary human. He was the Messiah, he was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And last week, in particular, we saw the testimony of God. We saw uh, God the Father declaring from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We saw the Holy Spirit uh, descending visibly on Christ and uh, affirming His ministry. And then we ended last week by looking at the testimony of the genealogy of Jesus, which shows that Jesus was uh, the son of Abraham, that He was a descendant of the tribe of Judah, and He was the king on on the, the lineage of King David. And all of these last three chapters really have been Luke's way of confirming to Theophilus uh, that Jesus was the Son of God. He was not just a mere human, he was not a good teacher, he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah and he was the King. And this morning we will see yet another confirmation uh, as the sinless Son of God is faced with temptation by the devil. We've seen many times already that Jesus came for a purpose. He came to save the world. He states his own purpose uh, for coming to earth, taking on a human body in Luke 19.10, where he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was the mission of Jesus Christ. That's why he came to earth. Uh, He came and, and became a human. God became a human for the purpose of saving humanity from their sin. Jesus lived and died to save sinners. That's the central message of Christianity known as the gospel or the good news if you ever hear that word gospel uh, basically that's what it means it's it's the it's the message that Jesus Christ died on the cross he lived a sinless life and died to save us from our sin and that gospel message is so central to the life and ministry of Christ that it became synonymous with these uh, first four books. You've heard of the, you know, we're studying the Gospel of Luke. Well, we call it the Gospel because that's really what it's all about. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about Jesus' sinless life, His death on the cross, and His resurrection. That is the core of these accounts of Jesus' life. That is really what Jesus' ministry was all about, was saving us from our sins. And last week we looked at the fact that Uh, In order to be saved from our sins and forgiven by God, we had to have a perfect substitute who could take our punishment and exchange our sinful life for his righteous life. And Jesus was that substitute. Uh, He had to live a sinless life so that we could receive his righteousness when he took on himself our sin. And that exchange is really the heart of salvation. So it's essential that Jesus lived a sinless and righteous life. We talked about that last week. And this, this, our text this morning uh, is of great importance to us because of this. If it's true that Jesus had to be perfectly righteous in order uh, to die on the cross and to bear our sins then it's very important that he made it it through this temptation without failing. In other words, uh, had Jesus failed in any one of these three temptations, uh, you and I would not be forgiven this morning. And so before we dive into our text, I want us to quickly uh, just address a couple of questions that maybe have come to your mind as we've read the text this morning. Uh, Number one, could Jesus have sinned? Was it even possible for Jesus to sin? That's a good question to ask and a good one for us to consider this morning. And It's one that uh, theologians have debated for a long time, and I'm not exactly sure why. To me, it seems like a pretty straightforward question. Uh, if Jesus was truly God, and it is impossible for God to sin, then it follows that it is impossible for Jesus to have sinned. I think that's a pretty open and shut case personally, but uh, this is something that people like to debate a lot. Uh, maybe another another way of explaining this would be that Scripture tells us Uh, If you read in Hebrews 6 and also in Titus, that it is impossible for God to lie. That phrase is actually found in Hebrews 6. It is impossible for God to lie. And in the Old Testament, it had been prophesied that the Messiah would be sinless. And if you doubt that, read Isaiah 53. It's a good text there. That Jesus was uh, to be sinless. And so if God had promised that the coming Messiah would be sinless and it's impossible for God to lie, then it must be therefore impossible for Jesus to sin. Again, I, I think this is a, a very clear answer to the question: Could Jesus have sinned? He was perfect, he was, he was pure, he was God in flesh, and so sin was not possible for him and If you want a fancy theological word for that, since you know i 'm fond of giving those to you, uh, the, the word the doctrine of impeccability, the impeccability of christ is is what we talk about when we say he, he was incapable of sinning and so that conclusion may lead to a further question: uh, If Jesus could not have sinned. Does that mean the temptations weren't tempting? You know, Were these not really that tempting to Christ if he could not have done other than what he did, namely resist the temptation? In other words, if it's impossible for Jesus to sin, these temptations must not be that big of a deal, right? Uh, maybe that's a conclusion that you may come to. I think that's wrong. Jesus was truly tempted even though succumbing to the temptations was not possible. Let me try to explain that. Alfred Plummer, I think, uh, explained it better than I could in his commentary on Luke. It's old English. It was written a long time ago, but try to follow along. I think it's very good. Uh, The force of a temptation, Plummer says, depends not upon the sin involved in what is proposed, but upon the advantage connected with it. And a righteous man, whose will never falters for a moment, may feel the attractiveness of the advantage more keenly than the weak man who succumbs so he's saying here that uh, Jesus even though he was righteous his temptations may actually have been harder than the temptations of a weak person like you and I that give in to temptation here's why here's his explanation for the latter probably gave way before he recognized the whole of the attractiveness or his nature may be less capable of such recognition in this way the sinlessness of Jesus augments his capacity for sympathy. For in every case, he felt the full force of temptation. So in other words, uh, Jesus was tempted far more than you or I because we often give in to temptation. Uh, once the temptation is too strong for us to resist, we yield to it. We surrender to it and we, we commit the sin. But Jesus experienced every temptation in his life to the max because he never gave in. He felt the full force of every temptation throughout his entire life. Every time, uh, Jesus had to resist the temptation. and So one final point I want to stress before we look at the text. First of all, Jesus could not have sinned. But secondly, that doesn't make uh, the temptations not real. They were real temptations. And then thirdly, I want to uh, point this out, and this is vital to understand the passage before us. Part of Jesus' condescension in taking on a human body is the fact that in the Incarnation, Jesus laid aside the independent use of His divine power. I'm going to unpack that sentence carefully, and it's worded carefully on purpose. I'm not saying that Jesus set aside His divine nature. That would not be accurate. We understand that uh, when God became flesh, Jesus, He was still God. He did not set aside His his deity. Uh, I'm also not saying that Jesus laid aside the use of his divine power, because we see in the gospels at times, Jesus did use his power. We see him performing miracles, walking on water, feeding people, uh, you know, thousands of people with a little meal, all sorts of miracles that human beings can't do. And so clearly, Jesus did, you know, he raised the dead, he healed the sick, he used his divine power. But what I said was, Jesus set aside the independent use of his divine power meaning that Jesus submitted under the authority of the Father and only used his divine power when the Father wanted him to and when the Spirit led him to. He didn't use it for his own purposes. He only, uh, he he basically, he was a human being who was also God, but he only exercised the authority and the use of his divine nature as the Father directed. Okay, let me me show a few scriptures to make that point clear. John 5 says... Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. And then uh, just a few verses later in verse 30, Jesus said, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will but the will of the Father which hath sent me. So Jesus did not do whatever he wanted to do. He didn't just use his, uh, his powers as God in a self-serving manner. He only exercised the use of those gifts when it was something that God specifically directed him to do. John, uh, Jesus went on to say in John 8, "...then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man..." That's talking about Jesus being lifted up on the cross when he's dying. "...then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself..." But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. This is an interesting argument. Jesus is saying, when you see me on the cross, you'll know I'm not just doing my own thing here. If Jesus was doing whatever he wanted to do, he certainly would not have died on a cross. He was uh, submitting in obedience to the Father's will, even to the point of, of death on the cross, as Philippians says. And so Jesus says very clearly in the book of John, I don't do any works of my own will. I only do what the Father wants. And so I I only do those things, as he says, that please the Father. So Jesus set aside the independent use of his divine power. He only acted as the Father led him through the Holy Spirit. And so now we arrive at our text, Luke 4, verse 1. Luke says Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan. That's the Jordan River where he was just baptized. We saw that uh, last week. And so uh, immediately following his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And you see right there, Jesus didn't decide to go into the desert on his own will. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. We talked last week about uh, the, the emphasis Luke gave to the Holy Spirit coming on Christ at his baptism and resting on him and how that uh, continues throughout the rest of his ministry. Jesus was led about by the Spirit. The Spirit directed him. And at the end of our text, if you want to just glance down there, at the end of our text you'll see that it's mentioned again, Jesus was full of the Spirit. He was guided by the Spirit throughout the rest of his ministry. And so the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to the desert for this time of testing or temptation. Uh, Mark makes this even more explicit where he says in his account of the, the same story, the temptation of Christ, he says, immediately the Spirit driveth him, Jesus, into the wilderness. And so I want to address something that you may have felt when we read this uh, a few minutes ago that, that maybe you're wondering, uh, why would God do this? Why would God push Jesus into this time of temptation? I mean, doesn't Jesus pray uh, in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation? Well, it seems like God's doing that right here. Hold that question. We're going to get back to that at the end of the sermon. I'm sorry to make you wait. Uh, but, uh, but we are going to address that at the very end. But uh, one more thing I, I do want to mention, maybe another objection that you might think, is that if you read the temptations, uh, they don't seem like very tempting, right? If you just read these, I, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, so let me just answer that quickly. First of all, What's tempting to you may not be tempting to me. We all struggle with different temptations, right? So there's some things that I, I, you know, you look at somebody else doing, committing some certain sin and you're thinking, what in the world? What causes somebody to do that? Well, they might think the same thing of you. We all struggle with different temptations. Uh, Secondly, these three temptations were not the only ones Jesus experienced. We see in our, in verse two of our text, it says that he was tempted for 40 days. So these three, Specific temptations that Luke mentions here came at the end of 40 days of testing and temptation of the devil. This was not the only time Jesus was tempted. Uh, Jesus was tempted throughout his entire life, just like the rest of us. We'll see this in Hebrews at the end of our sermon. But he was tempted... Uh, Earlier in his life, he was tempted here for 40 days. We see these three specific temptations that were given. And then he was tempted throughout the rest of his ministry. Uh, He'll be tempted by Peter at the end of his life to escape the death on the cross. Certainly that would have been a very tempting temptation uh, to escape the cross. So these were not the only temptations Jesus faced. And these were not tempting. uh, These were tempting to him in a way that they weren't tempting to us. First of all, because we couldn't have done these things, right? If the devil tempted you to turn stones into bread, obviously that's not tempting to you because you can't do it. Uh, but, but these are actual things that Jesus could have done. And so these were tempting. And it seems that these specific temptations were recorded purposefully to demonstrate that Jesus was obedient to the Father. You remember that he had just left being baptized. Uh, Luke, all the Gospel accounts of this temptation talk about this, how Jesus is baptized and and the Father declares from heaven, you're my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit rests on him, and then immediately after that account, uh, Jesus goes into the desert to be tempted. And So directly after being baptized, the Holy Spirit descending on him, he's led by the Spirit to be tempted into the wilderness. He had just been endowed with supernatural power, and he was being tempted by Satan to make use of that power to further his own interests without regard to the Father's will. That's really what all three of these temptations are about. Uh, Satan is tempting Christ to make use of this supernatural power and the filling of the Holy Spirit uh, for his own interests instead of obedience to the Father. So back to our text, verse 2: Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted 40 days, or I'm sorry, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days, he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Some of you, you haven't eaten for for a few hours, and you're already thinking about how hungry you are. Uh, But imagine 40 days with no food. I know a couple of people, I've met a couple of people that have fasted for 40 days. And uh, to me, that's like, wow, dude, you're, you're a way better Christian than me. I, I couldn't handle that. Uh, but 40 days that Jesus went without food. And then uh, in this weakened condition, Satan decides to tempt Jesus with food. He sees a vulnerability here in Jesus' humanity that he's hungry. And so he says, oh, this is a good opportunity for me to tempt him. Verse 3, the devil says to him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that a man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So Satan says to Jesus, Turn this stone into bread. I know you're hungry. Why don't you turn this into bread? That way you can satisfy that hunger. And the first question to ask is, why would it be wrong for Jesus to do this? What is the sin here? What specifically is wrong with Jesus turning bread into food? There's nobody around, so he wouldn't have been showing off. Uh, we certainly can't accuse him of gluttony after 40 days of not eating. So what's wrong with Jesus doing this? The temptation seems to be that it was to distrust God's love and provision and take care of himself. So just like Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, Satan comes to Eve and convinces her that God's holding out on her, right? Uh, he says, he says to to Eve in Genesis, uh, has God said you can't eat of the trees of this garden and, and, and Eve corrects him and says no we can eat of all the trees except this one and then Satan makes that one tree really tempting to her uh, says God's holding out on you if you ate, eat this tree you're not going to die don't worry about that uh, it actually will, will provide something good for you and that's what's happening here he, Satan is is tempting Jesus in a similar way think about what just happened in, in the previous story Luke's ba- uh, Jesus is baptized and the Father says from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Satan says, you know, if you're God's beloved Son, why is He treating you like this? Why did He lead you into the desert where you're going to be hungry for 40 days with no food? That's some kind of love. God doesn't seem to be taking care of you. He led you out here to go through this miserable time of temptation. Why don't you take care of yourself and make some bread? Have you ever been tempted to doubt God's love and care for you? Jesus I'm sorry, Satan does this to us all the time. He tempts us to stop following God's leading in our lives because after all, we did that for a while and look where it got us. It's not working out. I've been following the Lord. I've been doing everything I think I'm supposed to do and I'm out here in the desert with no food. We're suffering. And if that's what serving God gets me, then I'm out. That's that's the attitude of of many people who claim to be followers of Christ. But God does not promise us a smooth and easy road if we follow Him. In fact, He promises the opposite if you read the Bible. Uh, he promises us the road will be difficult at times. But as Christians, we know that all trials that God sends us, all, all the suffering he, he, he drives us through is for our growth. He's not torturing us. He's strengthening us spiritually by adding the weight of suffering to our lives to build our spiritual muscles And so when God turns up the suffering in your life, it isn't because He hates you or because uh, He's not taking care of you, but rather it's actually an expression of His love. He's shaping you in the way that He wants you to be. So Jesus responds to Satan's temptation by saying, I'll obey the words of my Father and do what He says, even if I don't have bread and I starve. I'll starve to death before I disobey God's Word. God led me here in the desert, and He has not directed me to make food for myself out of the stone And uh, until he does, I'm not going to do that. That's Jesus' response here. It's more important to Jesus, you can see this in his response, it's more important to him to obey the Father's command than to have enough to eat. So the first temptation for Jesus is to use his authority and power as the Son of God to do something that the Father had not directed him to do. So Jesus, we know he was truly man, he was truly God, and so he, in his humanity, he experienced the same hunger that you and I did. He was not supernaturally sustained from hunger. Uh, After 40 days, he was just as hungry as you or I would be without food. But he resisted the temptation to use his power in a self-serving manner. It's interesting to me, back to Genesis, if you think about Adam and Eve, uh, they were tempted in a similar manner, but think about the differences there. I mean, Jesus here is in the middle of the wilderness. Adam and Eve were in this lush garden that God had prepared for them. Uh, Jesus was 40 days with no food. Adam and Eve had, had many trees with fruit that they could eat from. There was just one God said don't eat from. And yet Adam and Eve failed their test. They fell into sin, even though God had provided for them. Jesus here passed the test. He's, he doesn't have an abundance of food. In fact, he, uh, he, he's very obviously very hungry at this point and struggling to see where his next meal is going to come from. He's in the desert um, and yet he, he passes the test. Jesus is truly superior in every aspect to Adam. And uh, one more thing that I'll, I'll note here, this is not on the screen, but if you, if you compare the account here uh, with the ones in Matthew and Mark, you'll find that at the end of the temptation, God says angel, sends angels to Jesus uh, to provide food for him. So God does, in the end, take care of that physical need, but he, he puts them through this test first. The next temptation we see starting in verse 5, the devil taking him up into an high mountain uh, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So Satan erroneously claims power and influence over the world and then offers it to Jesus. Now, it's true that, in a sense, uh, Satan, you know, he's called the God of this world in, in the New Testament, and so Satan does have a measure of influence uh, over the world, over the cosmos today, But uh, but he is certainly not the one in control of the world. We understand that God is sovereign over the events of our world. But Satan basically uh, gives Jesus the offer that I'm, I'll surrender everything to you. You know, This, this struggle will be over. I'll, I'll give up if you'll just bow down to me. And Jesus again quotes scripture in that, that commands only God uh, to be worshipped. And it seems here that the real temptation is that if Jesus will bow down before Satan just for this moment, he can establish his kingdom on earth without going to the cross. Satan is offering him a shortcut uh, to avoid the suffering and just set up your kingdom here and now. And we know in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when Jesus prays to the Father and he says, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, he, he follows that up by saying, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Jesus knew the pain and suffering that awaited him at the cross. And uh, he dreaded it in his humanity. He was not looking forward to this uh, this suffering. And here Satan is offering him a shortcut that would bypass the cross. And Jesus refuses, obviously, to worship Satan. Even just for a split second, he's not going to fall into this. Then the third temptation we see in verse 9, it says, He brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, this is Satan speaking, quoting the Bible, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now this last temptation on Satan's part is really clever. Uh, He's figured out that Jesus trusts God, right? You've seen this in the last few few things. He's willing to say no to, to food for 40 days. Uh, because he trusts that God's going to take care of him. And so Satan decides to turn that against him. Satan's also picked up on the fact that Jesus had a very high view of Scripture, that the Bible was the authority for Jesus. And so Satan quotes the Bible to Jesus in this temptation. Uh, he's trying to use Jesus' strengths against him. And so Satan tempts Jesus to display his faith in God and the Bible by jumping off the temple and trusting the promise of Scripture that God will protect him. And this particular instance requires a bit of explanation. Why would it be tempting to Jesus to leap off the temple and be saved by angels? I mean, what's the point of that? First of all, this scene is, to said, is said to take place at the temple, actually on top of the temple, where many devout Jews would have been. So leaping off the temple and being rescued by angels would have been a public, miraculous confirmation that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, uh, there was a Jewish tradition uh, from a, a rabbi that, that said that the Messiah would be Uh, made known to Israel at the temple on the roof. So this this may have been a temptation of Satan uh, to say, hey, why don't you jump off, let God save you, and then everybody will know that you're the Messiah. Everyone will believe you. Satan suggested to Jesus that throwing himself off the temple and depending on the angels to catch him, as the prophecy suggested they would, was a way of showing trust in God. And Jesus responds to this temptation by pointing out that testing God is not trusting him. Uh, Faith in God doesn't mean doing something dumb and depending that God will will just rescue you from your foolish choice. That's not faith in God that's testing God. So those are the temptations, those are the responses of Jesus. He defeats Satan at every point. He refuses to sin. Let's go back now and answer the question that uh, we left hanging at the beginning of our study. Why did God do this in the first place? Why did God lead Jesus into the wilderness for this time of temptation? Luke makes it very clear that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. This was not uh, an accident. I, I heard someone say that uh, Satan didn't come looking for Jesus; Jesus went looking for him, and that's true. God led Jesus specifically to the wilderness for the temptation. Why would He do that? I think number one was to prove His own His His sinlessness. Uh, Jesus had to be tempted and overcome the temptation of Satan to prove that He was God. So the righteousness of Christ had to be tested and proven by a direct confrontation with the devil in which Jesus came out victorious. I think that's kind of an obvious one, that uh, clearly God set this up to put on display uh, the sinlessness of his Son. Uh, number two, a uh, second reason God led Jesus into the temptation, first, to prove his sinlessness, second, to provide an example for us in resisting temptation. As we talked about last week, uh, the righteous life of Christ provides for us an example of how we ought to live our lives. And this is a great example in our text of how we ought to overcome temptations. And underneath that point, I'm going to give you three defenses uh, to resisting temptation, all of which, I think, are instructive for us, three defenses that Jesus used here in our text. Number one, I think this is obvious, the word of God. Uh, you notice that in each of these temptations, Jesus responds by quoting Scripture. He quotes first from Deuteronomy 8:3 and then Deuteronomy 16:3, and lastly, Deuteronomy 6:16. 6, so Jesus knew the Bible. And we are powerless against temptation without a knowledge of Scripture. As we see in the example of Christ, not only did he know the Bible, but it was his authority. He would not violate Scripture under any circumstance. The the Bible became the guardrails for Jesus that kept him from sinning. Notice also, Jesus knew the Bible so well that he knew when somebody was misusing it. Again, Satan quoted Scripture, but not everybody that quotes Scripture does so accurately. A couple of things could be said here. First of all, Satan actually does leave a phrase out of the verse uh, when he says God's going to protect you, the angels will save you. Uh, if you compare that with Psalm 91 where it's found, I don't have it written down and I don't remember the exact wording, but it says, he will keep you in all your ways. Uh, so this doesn't mean go out of your way and do something stupid to test God's, uh, God's protection. And so Satan does misuse Scripture in this uh, particular text. And there's a lot of people today uh, that twist the Bible. They may be preachers, they may quote the Bible perfectly accurately. But then when they try to teach what the Bible's saying, uh, it's completely, it's just not accurate. And we see this, I mean, if you doubt that, just, just watch pretty much any televangelist, any preacher on TV. You'll see them use the Bible and make it say whatever they want. It makes me wonder if they're next to be appointed to the Supreme Court. But anyway, here in our text, uh, Satan quotes, from the Psalms where it says God will protect him from harm. But as we pointed out, that doesn't mean we're supposed to put ourselves in harm's way in order to test God's protection. We're not supposed to test if that promise is really true. And Jesus rightly points out that to do this would be to violate another scripture, namely that of putting God to the test. And so another point I'd like for us to consider is Jesus knew the whole Bible, not just part of it. It's not enough to just know uh, a couple of verses in the Bible or a few passages that you're familiar with. Uh, Because sometimes you'll read one passage and think, oh, I'm supposed to do that. Well, uh, as as important as that passage is, you have to view it in in context with the rest of the Bible. Very important to us that the Bible is our authority, but it's also important that the entire Bible is our authority. We don't just isolate uh, a few verses that we really like. We must be students of all that God has revealed to us in His Word if we will effectively resist temptation and be able to spot when others are misusing it. Uh, When you hear someone say that, you know, this used to be popular, I don't know if it still is, with televangelists, they used to say all the time, you know, you send me a ridiculous amount of money and God's going to bless you, right? This is how they all got rich, uh, because people bought into this. But that kind of faith is, you know, faith is exactly the thing Jesus is referring to about testing God's promises. That's a modern day example of leaping off the temple and expecting God to catch you. Uh, when you get yourself in a terrible financial situation and you just say, okay, God, you've got to take care of me now. You've got to fix the mess that I made. And so this is certainly not, um, this is not a way for a Christian to behave, and if you know the Bible, you know that's true. And by the way, how can you know that a preacher, uh, that what a preacher is telling you is correct, and that includes me? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not God. I'm a fallible human being. And so how do you know when what I'm teaching you is right? There is no way for you to properly evaluate the statements of a Bible teacher unless you know the Bible yourself. And Sunday morning is not enough to keep you spiritually healthy. Uh, Let me just say this. If the only time that you open your Bible during the week is here at church, that would be sort of like eating one meal a week. You might last for a little while like that, but you're certainly not going to be healthy. Remember how Jesus said we're to live by every word of God. A lot of statements in the Bible that compare Scripture to food. Uh, Job 23, this is interesting, it says, My foot hath held his steps, his way have I kept, and not declined. He's talking about how he's resisted temptation. Uh, Notice verse 12, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So if you you consider food to be important, I don't know about you, I consider food to be very important to my uh, health and well-being, right? We have to eat. We have to eat on a regular basis. We can't just uh, eat once a week or eat eat every once in a while. No, we eat regularly because we understand that that's a part of our uh, physical health. And in the same way, taking in the spiritual food of Scripture is, a, is, is part of what it means to be spiritually healthy. And you can't be healthy spiritually uh, if all you do is come to church. I certainly, I'm not diminishing the importance of church. I'm glad everybody's here and I think it's important to be here, but this is not enough. Uh, church is, you might think of it as sort of like a multivitamin uh, it's a supplement to your diet, but you can't just say, well, I'm not I'm not going to eat anything but multivitamins. You're not going to last very long like that. You need substantive meals on your own. And so please uh, don't think that you will grow spiritually and be a healthy Christian if your Bible sits on a table all week until Sunday when you brush it off and bring it to church. You must be in the Scripture yourself. And we see this in the example of Christ. Uh, he didn't have a scroll of Deuteronomy with him okay this was he wasn't in the desert carrying this big thing around no he was uh, his mind was so saturated in the Bible from his own reading and study that he could quote random verses from Deuteronomy uh, this was how well Jesus knew the Bible and so the first point of application as far as uh, following the example of Christ in temptation is we must know the Word of God we must get the Word of God in our hearts this is vital to resisting temptation Psalm 119.11 uh, says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. So the first temptation, I'm sorry, the first defense against temptation is the word of God. Secondly, fasting. We see here in our text, Jesus fasted for 40 days. And fasting is something that we find uh, mentioned throughout the Bible as a means of intensifying prayer. It's easy for us to, and myself included, to get very lazy in prayer. It's, you know, we pray for 30 seconds a day or something, and uh, and then we find ourselves giving in to sin at every point. We become undisciplined in our spiritual lives, and fasting is one way to combat that. Uh, by not eating for a prolonged amount of time, whether that's a day or a week or 40 days like Jesus did, uh, it conditions you to have the discipline to say no to your flesh and the desires that Satan can tempt you with to sin. And this is uh this is an area that um I have to say it's probably a weakness of mine lately. I, I did more fasting earlier in my, my Christian life, but it's very easy to get out of the habit of it. It's a discipline, it's hard. Uh nobody likes fasting, and your body will remind you uh constantly of your need for food if you if you do decide to fast. Uh, but it is a it is a discipline that's mentioned in scripture and one that Jesus used as a defense against temptation. So first the word of God, second, fasting, and then third, uh the Holy Spirit. This was a third defense against temptation. Jesus was able to resist temptation by the power of the Spirit of God. We saw this at the beginning of our text. He entered. He was not only led, Luke says, by the Spirit into the wilderness, but he was full of the Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit was directing his actions. And a good example of Holy Spirit filling, what that means, is in Ephesians 5, where Paul writes, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And so, being uh, filled with the Spirit here in, in this verse is compared to being drunk. Uh, if you've ever seen someone that has consumed too much alcohol, what happens is they they no longer have control of themselves. And Paul uses that as an analogy to Holy Spirit filling. That if the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit takes control of you, uh, you're not leading your own life anymore. The Holy Spirit is leading and directing your steps. He's speaking to you through your conscience, convicting you of sin, and pointing you in the right direction. The Holy Spirit uh, uh, pricks our conscience. He, he prods us when we're doing something wrong, or when we're not doing something that's right. You know, you ever hear that? You ever feel that uh, that conviction in your spirit that you know I really should do this, or I really shouldn't do this? Uh, follow those impulses. Don't ignore those. The Bible warns us uh, not to grieve or quench the Spirit. Uh, and quenching the Spirit, basically, it's like taking a fire extinguisher and just, just putting it out. Uh, that's the idea there. And that, the Bible warns us not to do that, but rather to listen and yield to His will. And as you, as you grow in your knowledge of the Word of God, your conscience will be shaped by Scripture. And the Holy Spirit reminds you of, of what you know to be true and, and whether or not you're, you're living in, in uh, compliance with the Word of God. And so learn to obey the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. We passed the test of temptation only as we have our minds saturated in Scripture and our thinking directed by the Spirit of God. Verse 13, the conclusion of our text, when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Notice again, uh, these were not the only temptations Jesus ever went through. It says that, uh, that the devil basically departed from him until the next opportunity. Uh, he was not done with Jesus. Jesus went through more temptations after this. If you think about 40 days of in te- intense temptation of Satan, uh, this, basically it, it seems that, just based on the wording here, the devil had ended all the temptation. It seems like Jesus exhausted the powers of hell. They just they were, they gave up. They quit. Jesus uh, came out of this victorious, and Satan kind of uh, went back to regain and, and come up with some more strategies to, to fight against Christ. Jesus was tempted at every stage of his life, with the same temptations we are. Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2.17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, speaking of Christ, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So it says there in verse 17 that he was made like us so that he could be a merciful high priest. Uh, verse eighteen goes on to say, "In, in that He Himself uh, hath suffered, being tempted, because of the fact that Jesus endured temptation, He's able to succor them that are tempted. That means He's able to help us uh, that when we go through our temptation. So the Father, we said, led Jesus by the Spirit into the desert for this time of temptation. Number one, to prove that He was God, and to demonstrate His victory over sin. Number two to set an example for us in following or in resisting temptation by knowing Scripture, by fasting, and by the filling of the Spirit. And finally, Jesus was tempted for a third reason, and this is where I'd like for us to close this morning. He was tempted so that he could sympathize. That's that's a word uh, worth meditating on. Jesus was made like us, Hebrews says, that he might be merciful to us when we sin. He suffered temptation so that he could help us when we're tempted. A couple of chapters later in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, this is all speaking of Jesus, the whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus, Uh, we have a great high priest, Jesus, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. You see two negatives there. So what he's saying there is, we don't have an advocate in Jesus uh, that looks at us and just doesn't understand why we're falling into sin. No, he 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 sympathizes with us. He was, the end of the verse, in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. And that phrase, in all points tempted, is referring to throughout Jesus' entire life. Uh, when he was young, he experienced the temptations that kids uh, experience. When he was a teenager, he, he experienced those temptations. And throughout his life, he experienced the same types of temptations that we did, and yet he never sinned. And notice the the conclusion of this particular passage. In light of the fact that Jesus sympathizes with us in our sin and he was tempted to sin just like us, he understands that. Look at verse 16. Let us therefore, because of that, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, and because Jesus understands what it means to be tempted like we are, therefore, we can come boldly to the throne and receive mercy and grace. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. We can come to him in our brokenness and find compassion. Jesus endured temptation so that we would have a model to follow and mercy when falling. And if you're like me, I, I tend to think of God sometimes as a strict uh, father that is, uh, is mad at me when I sin. And uh, I don't know about you sometimes it's hard for me to pray after I've sinned after I've fallen in a particular way it's it's difficult for me to pray to him because I feel like he's mad at me. I feel like uh there's you know you know how like when you, when you do something you know really wrong when you're a kid and your parents are around you just you don't want to talk to them you just kind of want to go in another room kind of be away because you just feel guilty. Uh, but God certainly God is grieved with us when we sin, but he doesn't have disdain for us when we sin. As his children he's he's ready to forgive and accept us again. If you're a child of God, you don't need to fear that God is disgusted with you for your sin. He understands the weight of temptation. He experienced it. And if you come to Him in repentance and contrition, you'll find that He is a sympathetic Savior.
1: We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com. Or call us at two one nine eight eight five nine three zero three. We would love to hear from you.